All right, all right. Thank you for joining me on this another episode of the Gospel Truth. Thank you so much for joining us. I know I sort of went back and forth. There was a show, then there wasn't a show, and then there is a show, and then we had a late start. Ah, man, you know, that's a stickler of mine. I can't stand starting late, but it is all good. We are finally here, and we are going to have a fantastic discussion concerning is Jesus the Father? I have Dr. Michael Brogos, and I have Dr. Mark August with me, and we are going to have a fantastic discussion. But before I bring these guys in, I do want to encourage you to subscribe to the Gospel Truth and hit that notification bell on the Gospel Truth so you don't miss out on any shows, any debates, interviews, or commentary. So make sure you're subscribing to the Gospel gospel truth also much of this content is on other platforms facebook twitter instagram and tiktok so if you're interested to know where else you can follow the gospel truth and engage with tgt's content you can go to those social media platforms and follow on those platforms as well also all these debates are on podcasts as well itunes google play stitcher spotify so make sure you flow over there for your audio listening pleasure if you're just interested in the podcast all right as always, I do have a bunch of shows coming up here in the future that I want you to be aware of. Coming up next, Jesus is the only God. This is going to be a, actually, I think the topic has changed in this debate. It actually be, is Jesus the same substance as the Father? That is the topic of this debate, and this is going to be a great debate, so hopefully you'll be able to join us for that debate. After that, I have Michael Jones and Tyler Vila coming on. They're going to be having an open discussion concerning divine hiddenness. So this is going to be a fun, fun, fun discussion. I think it's the first time topic on the gospel truth so i'm looking forward to it i hope that you are as well after that i have uh, dakota Sorensen and jeremiah nortill baptism regener regeneration actually i was just on the phone with jeremiah nortill so this is going to be a fun discussion i'm excited for these guys to join me on the gospel truth then after that, I have a pretty um, interesting debate coming up. Provisionism, provisionism is semi-Pelagianism. I have Dr. Kirk Jarris and uh, Turretin fans going to be joining me, and we are going to have a fun debate on this topic matter. Uh, also, if you're interested in helping the gospel truth, if you say, man, I, how do I help the gospel truth? You can help us by building funds to buy media equipment. The whole goal of buying this media equipment is to be able to take media equipment on the road so we can have debates, interviews, whatever it is on in different venues and we do not have to rely on that venues poor equipment we have high quality equipment with us all the time so if you're interested in helping the, the ministry build funds to buy media equipment you can go to the link that's in the description of this video click on that link and you'll be directed to the fundraiser page so all right that said i am happy to have dr michael borgos and dr mark august with me and once again the topic of this discussion is going to be concerning is jesus the father let me bring these guys in so we can get this show on the road how you guys doing hello hey marlon all right, all right. Thank you guys for joining me. Once again, Dr. Mark, I appreciate you for joining me on late notice. I appreciate you stepping in. Um, and many of you know out there that this debate was originally scheduled with Brandon Nero, but he had to step away for uh, the obligations to his job. So we thank Brandon and I look forward to getting Brandon on, but Mark has stepped in. And once again, I appreciate Mark for stepping in and debating Michael on this topic. Um, so uh, thank you also, Dr. Michael, for being patient as we sorted all this out as well. Uh, but before we jump into the discussion, I do want to allow you guys to introduce yourselves to the audience. Let them know what you do, blogs, uh, YouTube channels, whatever it is, books, whatever you've done. Uh, let them know so they can come check you out, all right? Starting with Dr. Michael, if you don't mind, give a quick introduction to yourself. 
Uh, sure. I live in Torrington, Connecticut, which is a picturesque New England city. I pastor Northwest Hills Community Church, uh, where I preach and teach. And then I'm married. I have nine children. I have a wonderful wife named Marion. And uh, we have one grandchild that we uh, just welcomed into the world. Uh, Education-wise, I have a BS in Bible theology from Lee University, an MA in theology from the University of Chester, and uh, an MA in, the in uh, Biblical and Theological Studies from Belhaven University, PhD from Forest Theological Seminary, where I wrote my dissertation on Oneness Pentecostalism, uh, which resulted in a book called Against Oneness Pentecostalism, which is in its third edition. And then these days I'm working on a DMIN from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in my other big research area, which is uh, counseling. Um, and then I've also written a couple of other books related to the Trinity. Our Goddess Triune is a book that I uh, edited and contributed to with, uh, with Anthony Rogers and Edward Dalcor and others. Uh, so, yeah, that's about it. All right. Thank you so much once again, Dr. Michael, for joining me. All right, Dr. Mark, if you don't mind, go ahead and give a quick introduction to yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Mark August. I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio. I live in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, my wife's name is Reba. I have a son named Gabriel, and I am the uh, presiding bishop of uh, Apostolic Church of Truth and Salvation, or Acts Church, organization where we record about 5,200 church memberships worldwide. Um, and see, I have a doctor of theology from Cypress Bible Institute and a master of divinity from the same place. And next for me is looking to enroll in Urshan Graduate School of Theology um, with the United Pentecostal Church Organization uh, School and do a uh, MDiv and church history there. All right. All right. Cool. Thank you guys for those introductions. And so let's get into this discussion. Uh, once again, the topic of this discussion is, G is Jesus the father. Jesus is the father. Um, and so we're going to start that with maybe go take five by five to 10 minutes to sort of explain your thoughts and your positions on the subject matter. And then we're going to jump into uh, open discussion with you guys and just have at it for about 60 minutes. And then we'll go to uh, allowing the audience to ask some questions um uh for about 30 minutes sounds good all right yes sir sounds good yep. all right sounds dr good. michael if you got it for about five to ten minutes or uh, just explaining your position on is jesus the father uh yeah so i mean this is the rub with oneness pentecostalism uh especially you know in terms of theology and then also we have the issue with oneness uh, views of salvation, uh, viewing baptism not only as a means of regeneration, but also justification. Uh, and so the question is, is Jesus the Father? Obviously, the Bible teaches that he is not. Uh, Jesus is the Son of God. He is never called the Father. Uh, the one text that oneness Pentecostals appeal to, Isaiah 9, 6, uh, uses a very well-worn Hebrew idiom, abiad, uh, which means father of eternity, not that Jesus is the father, but that he's the father of eternity, meaning uh, that he is the creator himself. And there are a wide array of other passages where that Abi uh, uh, construction is used. Uh, so, for for example, the, my firstborn is named Abigail. Abigail means father of delight. Uh, Abraham means father of a multitude. 
and so forth. And so this sort of father of idiom is very frequently used in the Hebrew Bible, and it does not mean to identify the son as his own father in Isaiah 9.6. And so really, if in fact the fundamental premise of oneness Pentecostalism is true, uh, that Jesus is the father, we would expect to find a clear, unambiguous claim in the Bible uh, to that effect, but we don't find anything like that. Instead, what we find is exactly the opposite, claims that Jesus, the Son of God, personally pre-existed his human birth and was with the Father prior to the creation of the world. Uh, for example, in, in 1 Corinthians 8, uh, Paul tells us there's one God, the Father, uh, from whom are all things and uh, uh, from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and in and through whom we exist uh clearly if the son is the one through whom the father created all things then the son had to exist before his birth and was distinct from the father uh, similarly in hebrews chapter one uh, we are told that the father created the universe through the son and then that's explicitly spelled out in verses 10 through 12 uh, where the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 102, uh, you, Lord, uh, created the, the heavens of the earth, the heavens are the work of your hands. Uh, they'll wear out like a garment, like a robe, you'll roll them up, but you are the same and your years have no end. He quotes that and applies it to the Son of God, but according to the Father. And so clearly from the Father's own testimony, the Son of God is the creator of all things, the one through whom the Father created. And so, uh, and there are plenty of other passages which really very clearly not only indicate Christ's activity in terms of the created act, uh, but also uh, depict him as being pre-existent and uh, yet distinct from his Father in a personal way. A classic example of that is John 1, uh, where Jesus is called uh, God the Word, and he is made flesh in verse 14. Uh, there is a clear distinction between the Father and Son there, the Father being the God that the Word was with, and then the Word being himself as to his nature deity in the third clause of John 1.1, and the Word was God. And then again, we see John make that distinction emphasized when he says in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. In other words, don't get the two confused. And then we're told in verse 3 uh, of John chapter 1, that the Son is the one through whom all things came into being. Uh, and John is rather quite emphatic in that regard. Uh, so he says this two different ways. Uh, in, initially, he says, Ponte di autu genita, all things through him were made. And then he says, Kai chorus autu genita ude hen uh, ha gegonen. That is, and without him or apart from him, there was not one thing made that was made, meaning that the son is not a creature. Uh, he's not one who came into existence in Bethlehem or in Mary's womb, but rather he is eternal and he is distinct from his father. The son is the one through whom God created uh, the world. So I'll leave it, leave it at that. All right, thank you, Dr. Michael, for that. All right, Dr. Mark, you're up next. Uh, if you want to take about five to 10 minutes to sort of lay out your thoughts on, is Jesus the Father? Sure. <clears throat> thank you, uh, Marlon. Thank you, Dr. Burgos, for that. Um, 
and for going into a little of the Greek there. We appreciate that. Um, see, first, real quick, before I start, I'd like to mention that I do have a book out I just put out. It's uh, Do Theophanies Identify God the Son? And it's available on Amazon.com. Also on our website, uh, acts2216.org. There's a link there as well. Um, just to get started, I, I could say I, I, as a classic modalist, um, I can agree with everything that Dr. Burgo said, except for personal distinctions between the image of the Father and the Father. Um, I agree with the Hebrew in Isaiah 9 6. I don't see it showing personal distinction language there. Um, but there is distinction language. You see it in the Old Testament and you see it all throughout the New Testament. Uh, Dr. Burgos made a good, did a good job of uh, giving us some examples of that. And so um, I would say that many oneness folks would not be able to agree with a lot of what he, Dr. Burgos said. And I think the reason being is because um, there's a lot of a lot of oneness folks hold a particular belief that is more native to the later third or early or the fourth century um, when it comes to the timing of the initial enunciation or radiation of logos or the image of God. And so I think a lot of oneness folks might hear me say I agree with Dr. Burgos on these things and, and find that quite shocking. But uh, let's just go through some of what he said, you know, First uh, Corinthians 8, 6, you know, a lot of oneness folks would look at that and say, well, um, you know, it says there's one God, the Father. So if God is a Trinity, then the Trinity is the Father. And I think that that's a wrong way to look at things there. Um, I, I think there is there is a distinction quite clearly, but I I. I would not go as far as to call it a personal distinction. And, and here's why. Because the ancient Hebrews, the ancient Judaism, Second Temple era Judaism, uh, the Pharisees um, would use this type of language in their oral teachings and in their writings. Uh, we see it in the Old Testament. We see uh, Logos, um, you know, or, or you could say Christ. Um, making statements in the Old Testament. We could see God making statements in the Old Testament that um, uh, would, you know, where he's uh, talking about Logos in like the third person, you know. Um, so we have to, we have to understand, I think, from the get-go that this is, this is an ancient way of Jews to talk about God and about his image. Um, it's a particular type of Jewish discourse, um, a religious discourse where they make distinction between God and a all-encompassing, everywhere present spiritual reality, um, you know, ever-living, self-living self reality, right? And this image of God that which he can find himself his his full fullness to this visible image I think that that therein lies the distinction um I, I like to talk about a few 
few other scriptures, but I, I think in the opening five minutes, it, it might be best to just kind of wing it a little bit. Um, the, the, you can generically say, okay, the subject is, is Jesus the Father. We can generically say, yes, G, you know, the Father is Jesus. G, Jesus is the Father. Or the Father became Jesus. That, that can be generically said amongst one of Pentecostals, but it's not really theologically accurate or, 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 or more, more detailed, theologically detailed. You know, I think it would be better to say the logos of the father was manifested in the flesh or the law, the log, the word became flesh. Logos became flesh, I think is a more scriptural way to go at it. Um, I agree with Dr. Burgos. Logos was pre-existent to creation. The, there was a pre-cosmic radiation or beginning of logos. Um, this is taught by the ancient Jews and was adopted by the early Christians, being that they stemmed from uh, Judaism. Um, the the um, a good example of that would be the you know John's prologue. Uh, Dr. Burgos did a great job of uh, exegeting a little bit of that for us. Um, so you know we see the first few verses of of John one. We see John reiterating existing Jewish doctrine. He's not making up some new Christian thing that wasn't believed before, this new Christian theology. But he was he was recording what Jews already previously believed, and he they and the New Testament writers do this in, in numerous instances, and they do it in such a way as to try to establish legitimacy for worship of a man, which was against Judaism against the law and so we can't worship a man unless that man is the one hebrew god and so they went to great lengths to uh, help us understand that this the very same way that god the father was seen in the old testament is the very same way that we believe he is seen in jesus christ and that's this is what the new testament writers are saying to us um the I mean, even Trinitarian theology admits that that Jesus is the sole image of the Father. Um, that you cannot see the Father other than through Jesus Christ. And so, I think kind of therein lies the question. I, I think it's it's uh, it's it's not as much as is Jesus the Father, but is is Jesus the image of the Father, like? Logos was the image of the Father in the Old Testament, and if that is correct, then you can generically say that yeah, Jesus is the Father. Um, I I think that it's very important. I don't want to discount anything that Dr. Brugo said. I think it's very important to understand that that the New Testament writers equated the Christ of the New Testament, Logos of the New Testament, with the Logos of the Old Testament. And I believe they did so on a uh, personally, on a personal level, right? Um, so there, there really is a way, a way to think about these things. And and Dr. Burgos is correct in a lot of what he says. I, I don't think he gets enough credit for that from oneness peoples. I think um, um, you know oneness folks want to go with what's popular and in a lot of the larger oneness churches in the united states a lot of the a lot of the 
popular teachers are going with a, a popular doctrine, which to, to my estimation is probably representative of about 50% of the modern oneness movement. And um, so that's to try to say, well, no, you know, Logos was a thought or plan in the mind of God until the incarnation. Well, you know, uh, but again, like I said at, at the opening, that that was not really meant. It was not taught amongst bishops that we can find until the fourth century uh, with Marcellus of Achaia. So, um, yeah, I think it's I think it's time for folks to understand what the original oneness folks taught. And I don't mean the early 1900 oneness folks. I mean the modalistic monarchians, the ones who were the bishops during the second and third century. I think we, especially in Rome, I think we need to to examine what they taught and uh, find doctrinal continuity with the New Testament writers, um, going all the way back to to Second Temple Judaism uh, as well. And uh, you know, so nothing against my oneness brothers who who would argue with Dr. Burgos on those type of points, but um, I I think you know, especially with modern theology. And in closing, uh, I'd like to say modern theology. Uh, you know, historians, uh, Bauckham, Hurtado, Hurtado um, Dunn, the, these folks, um, Daniel Liu, you know, uh, scholarship, modern scholarship is increasingly showing that the, the, the distinction language we see in New Testament is indicative of Second Temple Judaism, uh, you know, in the way that they spoke and the, distinguished between God and his eminence versus God in his uh, transcendence. And uh, I'll go ahead and stop with that. All right. Thank you so much, Mark, for that opening. And now we're going to go ahead to go to more of an open discussion for you guys. Uh, once again, this will be a 60 minute open discussion and I won't interrupt unless I hear rude language going back and forth. Um, and if we're veering <laughs> off uh the subject too much you know so nonetheless you guys have fun i'll be in the background listening and audience as they're interacting make sure you get some questions in because right after the discussion we'll be having some questions thrown at these guys to see how they handle them all right that's it you guys have the stage for 60 minutes okay uh so mark um can you tell me, like, what do you think the Lagos, as described in John 1, is? Okay. Um, I would say that that is John reiterating uh, Second Temple Judaism wisdom word doctrine. So he's, he's saying in the beginning was the image of God, and he was with God in the beginning, and he was God. Uh, just just reiterating existing Jewish doctrine, trying to establish legitimacy for the the fledgling uh, newly developing Christian movement. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, so so then, who or what is the is the is the word in in the prologue of John? On your view. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, <clears throat> I. I wouldn't say my view because I I try not to hold personal views. I try to simply report the views of um, you know the the biblical writers, and you know I just happen to align myself with those views. But um, 
I would say I would say you know John is 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 expressing that the image that was in the beginning with God through whom all things were made the same way that that image was seen in the Old Testament you know is the same way is the same image that became flesh in verse 14 so it's it's the the wisdom of God the visible image of God so thought and speech um, I agree with you that that thought is eternal that logos is eternal i'm sure dr bernard would as well it's just on where where the disagreement mainly lies on this subject particularly is the and timing of the initial manifestation of logos and i think that's where dr bernard is in error okay um uh so you would you would agree that god is personal right I agree that, that God is a personal being, yet yeah, with with His own thoughts and rationalities and desires. Yes, sir. Okay, uh, is the word personal? Because the word was God. Right. So I would say that that's like saying when I look in a mirror, this is Mark August. If you see me on this video, that that is Mark August because you're seeing me. And so I think that's the same kind of of what we're seeing there in John one. Um, you know, my inner self, my inner being, my reality, my, uh, if you want to talk philosophy language, is within myself. Modern, a lot of modern scholarship, you know, says soul. I love your research and how you, uh, months ago, you made, you wrote an article that said, you know, how um, man is a twofold being. Ancients believed man is a twofold being, and that is correct. You're right in that. I've, I've done my research on that as well, and I concur with you on that. So, so I would say my innermost spirit, you know, that's me. But I could also look at my image in the mirror and say, well, that's that's me too. And so I think it just a lot of it has to do with possession and ownership of the image or the body itself. Right, but the the reflection is a reflection of you. It's not you, right? Okay, well, it's a reflection it's, of you. It's, but it's, it's, a, right? it's a reflection of my image. It's a re, it's a reflection of my image, and it could be argued that because it's a mere reflection, that it's also can be considered my image. The pic, pictures are the yeah, same way. Pictures are backwards. Talk to the image. It's a reflection of you. It's you, but it's it's not you. It's a picture of you. Am I right? So is that what you're saying? The logos is in terms of God. Okay, so logos is the expression of God, right? Is the image of God, um, either expressed or unexpressed. The very the very term logos means thought and speech, uh, which was created or or originally used to uh, you know uh, let us know about that thought processes. So uh, thought and speech at the same time, uh, um, and always you know eternal. Uh, I, I wouldn't say eternal sonship, but he, but definitely always eternal and uh, eternity past. Okay. Um, I, I don't mean to dominate the, I just find this fascinating what, you, what you're saying. Uh, so as I read the Gospel of John, I see John very much consistently using metaphor to describe Jesus. Um. He's the way, the truth, and the life, the bread, the gate, the good shepherd. Um, he's the resurrection and the life. 
Uh, I don't take it that Jesus is literally bread, right? I, I take that as a metaphor. Sure. So when I read sure. the prologue, which a prologue is, in my understanding, is supposed to give you a snapshot of what's to come. Um, as I read the prologue, I, I believe Jesus is called uh, the word because he is um, the the one who explains God, as John says in, in John 1.18. So I take that as, you know, being characteristic, as attributive. Uh, I think maybe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you take that more literally. Um, in fact, you would take almost a Greek lexical uh, definition to Logos. Am I right? I could say that, I guess. I mean, yeah, I, so, you know, I, I, think it, I think it's more consistent with, with ancient Judaism's treatment of the subject. Uh, because that's what we're dealing with. We're not dealing with an abstract thought. We're not dealing with a, um, you know, any other example that you just just came up with. Or we're just simply with the image of God and how the image of God was not always visible. It was in the thought and plan of God until a precosmic begetting or radiations right before the beginning. Uh, okay, but. Um, that's that's yeah, what so John that's is describing the, there. That's um, that, no, that's I'm sorry. That that is the thought process John John is describing there. Like I say, he's reiterating existing Jewish thought, and Bauckham and Hurtado would back me up on all this. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm very much familiar with Bauckham and Hurtado. Uh, may God rest his soul, and and Gordon B and others. Yeah. Uh, and, and I would have to disagree with you there. Uh, while they would say, of course, John is a Jew and he is reiterating Jewish thought, uh, they would disagree with you in terms of what the content of that Jewish thought is. And what they would appeal to is a pre-existing uh, Christological paradigm dealing with the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Uh, so they wouldn't yeah, which be... I agree with, which I agree with completely. But they, they, like me, are very quick to say that there's no personal distinction there. Okay, um, so what do you mean by personal distinction? Okay, so uh, uh, distinct persons. So a, uh, a father person and a son person. They they wouldn't they would not see that. There, uh, a matter of fact, Bauckham's is known for his main argument being uh, ancient Judaism being extremely strict monotheism. Yeah, so you probably know this, but there's not Ju ancient Judaism. There are Judaisms. Um, there's no Judaism is well, far from a monolith. Described we're talking in the about New second in context. We're talking about second temple era Judaism during during the time. In the just second temple, you've got Christ, in the New Testament, right? You have the serious theological divisions in the New Testament, right? So, are you are have you read anything about the um, the proto trinitarianism among Jews in the Second Temple period? I haven't. I think Bauckham even mentions that that uh, the only ex that there is none whatsoever except for Philo, and I have uh, several other scholars who concur. So, why is there rabbinic literature? Uh, in the Second Temple period that argues against Jews using what the, the same kind of hermeneutics, the same kind of exegesis that 
uh, the church fathers would use to prove the Trinity. Uh, why would you have that if, in fact, there were no Jews prior to, you know, the Christian church uh, that believed that? I mean, wouldn't that be kind of an okay, inconvenient so, truth, what you're suggesting? No, sir. So what's happening is, what's happening is, is, is okay, so let's just lay out a timeline uh, quickly. Uh, you, we have Pharisees trying to preserve existing Jewish doctrine against the Sadducees and Hellenization of Jewish culture and religion. Uh, we have forced attempts by the state to uh, try to uh, make that happen. And so they're, they're vigorously uh, theologically fighting against outside influences and philosophical influences. And so we see Philo become somewhat famous um, and, uh, you know, in Helleniz Hellenization areas of Alexandria and, and whatnot. Um, and a lot of Sadducees, we see, you know, we see uh, Sadducees not supporting him and endorsing him and in, in his doctrine, but not fighting against it as much either because they, it, if, he's not, if he's not against us, they're for us, you know. And so, um, uh, and in the backdrop of all this, we see Paul, a former Pharisee, uh, warn against bringing philosophy into the Judeo-Christian religion, uh, just as he would have voiced prior to his conversion and into the, the Judaism religion. And so I, I kind of see that that's kind of the backdrop that, that we're talking about. The Targums are oral right, oral teachings, oral um, expositions of scripture, you know, and they weren't starting to be written down until the first century. And so, uh, you know, we, we, I don't know what writings you're referring to that would be prior to the first century, but I don't believe there's any Targumic writings that, that, that we can date that early. Um, yeah, uh, there's, it's debatable uh, with regard to the Targum. Certainly Targum Pseudo-Jonathan has been pinned to be the earliest, and uh, that's been pinned to be a, a pre-Christian, uh, having a pre-Christian literary origin. Uh, but most people would acknowledge that the Targums, whether or not they were written down, of course, reflect a pre-existing theology, and that theology is certainly not uh, what you're describing. Uh, so, yeah, I, I get it, you know, Hellenism, sure, uh, but uh, we also have to remember that Judaism was virulently against any kind of syncretism, uh, and what you have in rabbinic writings uh, that, are, that are both post- and pre-Christian, mainly they're post-Christian, and the reason why is because that proto-Trinitarianism uh, fed right into the Christian church, and so obviously Unitarian rabbis can't have that. Uh, and so Daniel Boyerin and uh, Alan Segal and Margaret Barker um, bring to bear a vast array of rabbinic literature, uh, which is polemic in nature and intended not against Christians, but against Jews who do not have a Unitarian conception of God. Uh, but maybe it would be more helpful, uh, given that this is a little bit granular, uh, to, to go to a passage where you think, you know, it teaches that Jesus is the Father. Okay. Um, well, I would say that I agree with you. I don't think there is one passage that plainly says Jesus is the Father. 
I would think that that uh, you know many Oneness folks might be surprised on that, uh, but I I don't think there is one. Um, I think that instead what we see is the same type of ancient Jewish way of speaking about God and His transcendence versus God and His imminence, and I think what we see is, is trying to juggle between an infinite all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present spirit being and the image that we can see, that we can interact with, right? And you you had said it said earlier, you had made mention of, of something along those lines. And so, yeah, that, that that's to, I think, to really describe the imminence uh, of, of how we are able to relate to God. Um, some of that bled over into philosophy and and philosophy some philosophers ancient philosophers classic ones uh you know to, uh, plato and and whatnot uh, a lot of them talk a lot about sort of that kind of idea that, that they got from the jews and and so i th i think as we can draw a little bit of help from that um you know those those who aren't um those who are, who are well studied can but so if you know, I can ask uh, you, is it your if you view? want me to bring some scriptures, right? I, I have a couple of scriptures well, we could talk about. You just mentioned something uh, there. Is it your view that the angel of the Lord is the image of God? And so there's God transcended. He's in heaven. And the angel of the Lord is sort of his manifestation on the earth. Is that right? Sure. Okay. Okay. And so, again, it's, it's not much about what I believe, but the ancient Jews taught that God was in and and spirit right omnipresent everywhere present all-knowing spirit and that the the memra or logos or word or wisdom um you know be, was made visible in the beginning and through who all things were made so so it's uh the same with the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is to the ancient Jews is a manifestation of God to creation. So it's a way, an eminence of God or how we can interact with him. Um, you know, him and his transcendence would be no man has seen God at any time. God is spirit, right? Everywhere present. That, that's God and his transcendence. But then we have, you know, um, you know, uh, what, uh, Parents of Samson, you know, we've seen God, uh, Jacob wrestles with God. So I think in context, when we see see the instances of the angel of, of Yahweh, um, in context, we're seeing the image of God there the very same way that we would see the image of God if we were Peter or Paul, uh, Peter or, or John uh, sitting there, you know, talking to Jesus. I think it's the same kind of okay, idea. Uh yeah, I get the, I get the control. So so when when G, uh, the angel of the Lord speaks to Hagar, that's sort of the image of God on earth. But let me ask you. So he speaks to Hagar twice, once in Genesis 16, once in Genesis 22. But in Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord speaks to Hagar from heaven. So wouldn't that sort of put a hole through this idea that, you know, this is a mechanism to protect God's transcendence? No, because uh, God God uh, can do that if he wants to. I mean, he can speak 
through his visible image into the world if he if he wanted to there he could speak without his visible image it it doesn't make a difference um i do have a couple right. of scriptures though if if you want to go sure, into go for it. uh just, just just a few um so like uh, deuteronomy 326 you know is not uh is he is he is not he thy father that has bought thee hath he not made thee and established thee right so we have god that's a father uh thou lord art our father our redeemer you know uh we know of christ is our redeemer and have we not all one father has not one god created us and we know from our examination of john one you know uh, christ did indeed create other other places say all things were made through him uh, other than john and so i, I think I think what we have is a, and I don't want to say device, right? Because that's that would be wrong. But just generically, you know, I think we have a device or a vehicle through which God is seen to creation, a uh, visible form that He chose to manifest, uh, and all, and we were made in His image and after His likeness. You know that all things were made through. And, sure. And um, but I mean, you realize so that all your, when you well, just quickly, when you talk about um, how you see the sun there in creation, and and the sun's rolling that, and you see uh, distinction language, you know, between father and son, and, and creation itself, and just in that instance, you know, you're completely correct in what you're observing there. It's just there's no personal distinction. Uh, within any Judeo-Christian thought until the second century, so we have we have to try to keep that in mind before we try to go into exegesis, because then we're going to end up with uh, the argument that we're having today. So I think it's very beneficial to okay. Kind of so go do back you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? I'm sorry. Do you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? Okay, yeah, yeah, in the original manuscripts, absolutely. I don't mean the inerrancy, I mean the sufficiency of scripture. No, that God, yeah, yeah, you know, I think we're good on, God has preserved his word over time and everything's good. Right, by, by sufficiency, what I mean is that God has provided everything we need for the Christian life in the text of the Bible. Yeah, we're, we're good, we're good, yeah, I believe so, that, yeah, we're good. So, uh, so why then would we need to bring pre-existing knowledge about second temple theology to the text if in fact we believe in the sufficiency well, of scripture because that was because okay. i believe that the hermeneutic right. taught okay. in the Bible. sure sure absolutely i can answer that i can answer that that's a very good question and i'm, I'm sure your listeners be be uh, ha happy to hear the answer uh, it's because the the proper hermeneutic science is the grammatical historical method not the grammatical method it's not just grammatical we can't just say let's look at what the text says and whatever it whatever we determine it says we have to take that literally earlier you were talking about well you take some things not literally well well that that's a choice to not do that you know because you understand in those instances we can't simply rely on the grammar and and the text you know, because there's certain things that the way things are said in the Bible where we have to understand what they're trying to attempt, attempt to say to us. That's why I like um, 
the New Living and the NIV so much because it explains the thought processes behind what the writer is trying to say rather than just a word-for-word -word translation like what King right. James attempts to do where because you know, a lot of misunderstanding method. can come from that. So the so when so well, method is not if I if I could just respond, it's better if we go back and forth in short bits. The grammatical historical method is not taking a pre-existing historical framework and putting that on the text and interpreting it. The grammatical historical method is interpreting the text within its historical milieu, right? Yeah, I, I didn't say that. Uh, well, you didn't let me finish. I didn't I didn't say that. So leave that that. Okay, so let me finish. The historical method by itself is, in my opinion, the strongest method. Uh, that stands alone by itself because you can say the text says this but historians can say well that's not what how they took it and believed it that way okay so we look at the practical application of the text right and so it's not just okay this is what it says and this is this this is what it, this is what it says to me and and so but it's more of what did it mean to those folks in the attended audience that was, you know, during the writing of these documents. And when we look at that, we we don't see we don't see anything about personal distinctions until the second century. If we look at any ancient writings, there's nothing. Uh, you know, I see, I see plenty even, of things about personal distinctions in the New Testament well, and Old I'm, Testament. So. I'm sure you do. So maybe I'm, you I'm sure you do, show but, me where. But, Right. So this is like, um, like, like Bauckham says in, where does he say it? In Jesus and the God of Israel is the book he says this. He says, by means of certain clearly articulated criteria. And what he's speaking of is the means through, through which it was communicated by the ancient Jews of the difference between God and his eminence and God and his transcendence or God and his invisible spirit mode or his visible manifestation mode, right? And so um, uh, Ronning, uh, the author of John's Logos Theology and the Jewish Targums, um, you know, toward the end of the book, he, he says that, hey, you know, there's no personal distinction language in the Targums whatsoever. He says, and if you carry the thought patterns from these targums into New Testament thought, the result would be modalism. And and I think that that's just a natural conclusion from the collection of the data. He's a Trinitarian yeah, no, guy. I'm familiar with what, what I think you're misreading okay. Ronnie okay. there. But, uh, I think I'm pretty familiar with what these men say. I've, 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 I've interacted with Ronnie personally, and uh, I've read everything Bauckham's written including his wonderful commentary on Revelation. Uh, sure. But my point here is uh, the ground of argument, right, is the text of Scripture, not quotations from scholars, whether living or dead. Uh, and as I read the, especially the New Testament, I very clearly see personal distinctions because I see... Can you show, can you show me where? Can you tell me where? Give me a couple examples yeah, for our right audience. Now. So I see uh, subject-object dialogue. I see uh, personal interactions in terms of an emotive relationship. I see uh, economic distinctions. Um, you know, uh, clearly there's personal distinctions. Um, I think it would, I think what you're suggesting is that you're taking something to the text 
a presupposed historical framework and then reading the text that way. That's not what I do, though. Uh, to me, the grammatical historical method is to determine the author, uh, the author's intent by what he wrote, not yeah. Some kind and of that's what I'm saying. That's yeah. That's that's what I'm saying. But and that in that hermeneutical search for or epistemological search for truth or hermeneutical search for extraction of, of the meaning of the text, we have to take into account the, uh, the historical mindset of the writer and the intended audience, as you said. And Siegel even says that, uh, you know, that, that there's no real evidence for some sort of proto-Trinitarianism within Judaism. I mean, no scholar now Alan, really Alan believes Segal that. Alan says that? I, You're suggesting uh, Alan Segal says no, that? I, I, well, I, I shouldn't say say that, but but he he does... He wrote I an entire in his, book. book. He wrote an entire yeah, book. I, yeah, I mean, just the yeah, I, No, I, I believe in his book he admits that the rabbis didn't allow for that type of language. And Bernard cites that in his doctoral thesis. After the start of Christianity, right? So it's kind of, you're arguing anachronistically, but let's go to the text of the Bible. Okay, so I've given you, for example, the prologue of Hebrews, where the son is explicitly identified as the creator twice, once being said to be the agent through which the father created. And then the second time, more explicitly in Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, the son is claimed by the father to be the, the Yahweh who created the heavens and the earth. So as I read that, I see personal distinctions. I see immutability attributed to the son. I see uh, eternality attributed to the son. I see uh, the father saying these things about the son, predicating you're, them about the son. You're correct to see all that. You're correct to see so all that, but I just I don't see I don't see how you can form personal distinctions from that uh, without being without being educated into that in some way, shape, or form. You know what I mean? Okay, so Mark, uh, if I uh, say I'm going to get a new pair of Jordans through my friend, what am I saying that my that I'm my friend, or that my friend doesn't exist, or that my friend really is does well, exist? And there's well, a, but that's, that's the that's the difference, and that's the point Hurtado and Balcom are trying to make is that we're misunder and those that contend for personal distinctions in Second Temple Judaism, Balcom and Hurtado agree they're misunderstanding ancient Jewish discourse. How how I'm the Jews about talked about how the Jews talked about between the difference between God and His image versus God and His transcendence. Now that it that can turn around. Those observations could turn around and be applied to Trinitarians today because they're doing the exact same thing. What you're describing is exactly what is described as Balkam and Tar describing when they're treating that subject. Except for you're you're not really you're not trying to we're not here trying to make a case for in any rabbinic writings. We're trying to talk about Bible, right? But so you're applying that same thought process to scripture. And I would say Balkam and Tar would agree with me that, that you're doing the same thing to biblical text. Hurtado doesn't deal extensively with the prologue, prologue of Hebrews. Balkum does to an extent. But I'm not talking about either of those men. I know what they write. I'm very well familiar. I have, as I said, well, I'm saying I have I, read everything. I understand relevant. that. I'm, I'm not trying to lean on them real hard. I'm just trying to give you an example of, of 
where I think you're at in your thought processes. I, I'm not saying you're yeah, wrong and seeing what you're seeing. You're right. You're very observant and right in seeing what you're seeing. I agree with you 100% in what you're seeing, except for we right, have to understand that. there's no personal distinctions amongst the writers so they don't understand they would not even have intended that in the text what they're intending is to describe for us ancient jewish ways of describing the relationship between god and his visible mode and god in his invisible mode mark mark if we could just keep just out of uh cordiality if we could keep our responses a little briefer uh it would seem to me that you have to demonstrate that from the text merely than merely assert it, right? You could say, oh yeah, you know, they're using this pre-existing framework for Second Temple Judaism, which I dispute totally, but yeah, I get it. That's your view, but demonstrate that from the text. Don't just insert it there and sort of as if it's a bold assertion that can stand on its own feet. It's not. Where do you get that well, from? Well, actually, Hebrews? it's it's the modern consensus, Doctor Burgos. Everybody believes that. I don't understand why. Why are you Why are you trying to make it out like this is something in a minority of scholarship? This is the vast majority of Christian and even secular scholarship agree with me on this. I don't understand why. Is it because you you want to adhere so closely to positive theology methods? You you don't you don't want to explore what what the yeah. modern consensus so are you is to defend your are you position. Are you familiar with the fallacy of ad populum, an argument from the majority? You familiar with that? I don't okay. grant your premise that, you know, this is the majority view of all scholars. Not at all. And they're certainly not in favor of one is well, That's quite We're clear. gonna have to uh, agree but, to disagree on these things and let, let the audience do some research for themselves. Where my, my point is here, where do you get this from Hebrews? Let's go to Hebrews. Show it to me. Where do you get this from the text? Okay, well, I never said I pulled anything from Hebrews, specifically the text, but if you want to address Hebrews 1, we can. Um, again, yes, I, I agree with you with everything you said. I agree with you with everything you said, but with not, not with personal distinction because there was no mindset of personal distinctions amongst the writers or the recipients at that time. Uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, um, and I don't, I'm not going to try to pull it up, but uh, let, let's just say, you know, he's the um, the image of God right there. You know, he, I think, let me see, what's he, let me find Hebrews here. Hold on a second. Your question has, your question has merit here. I can read it. I don't think it doesn't. Okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, I appreciate that. But your your question has merit here. You're 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 right to see what you're seeing. It's just I think if we understand that the the proper context of what you're seeing, we we would we would have an agreement. But he, Hebrew, you know, okay. So Hebrews one, God has sundry times, diverse manners, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the fathers, and the express image of his person, the fathers, and upholding all things by the word of his power, the fathers, when he had by himself purged our sins, set down the right hand of the majesty of, uh, on high. So uh, I think we see son there, and I think in normal in our normal sense of English, you know, American English, we see sun there. We say, okay, well, there's a sun there, uh, you know, in the beginning with God next to him. 
Okay, but this this is an instance, an example of a um, where the writer is uh, talking about the sun in creation, right? He's using the term sun retroactively, and this is to personally identify Christ, the Logos, right? We're saying this Christ, this man is Logos with the Logos of the Father in the Old Testament so that when we worship him, we're not doing it against the law, right? They're trying to, these New Testament writers are trying to establish a, their reasoning for worshiping this man. And no, we're not in heresy. They're trying to uh, um, support their, their doctrine. And so I think here we see sun use re retroactively. I, I don't, you know, uh, by whom he made the world, you know, in John 1, uh, same, same thing going on there. First uh, John 1, 1, you know, Revelation 3, 14. I see all these, all these things speaking on the same type of deal, you know, where the image of son is expression, because it even mentions in verse three, you know, the express image of his person. So I think all that, all that together, I don't think there's any separation of thought there. I think he's just reiterating existing Hebrew doctrine at the time. Right. And, so and it applying doesn't mention... that doctrine, applying that doctrine to the Christ. Right. In so order to, in order to, to establish reasoning for worshiping him. If I could just respond please, to please. Uh, what you've said here. So I, from, so several things. I don't think the issue at hand is whether or not it's right to worship Christ. That's a foregone conclusion. Uh, rather, the issue is whether or not these Hebrew Christians who are now enduring persecution at the hand of other Jews should go back to Judaism. Uh, that's pretty explicit well, in the balance of the letter. Yeah. Uh, well, but going if, to... If I can, if I can quickly, so just, yeah, the entire just Christian movement... Hey, hey, Dr. Mark, let's allow uh, Dr. Michael to respond to what you, which all, all of what you said. So, okay, I'm, I'm trying to. I'm getting a lot of choppiness, so I'm getting like half words here and there. If you guys are kind of excuse me, I'll, I'll yeah. try to, try to keep yeah, quiet may, and just let you talk. And see. Yeah, maybe a slight, it may be a slight delay too. So take that into consideration as well. So, uh, go ahead, Dr. Michael. Go ahead, respond to what Dr. Mark was saying. Uh, so I'm, I'm, uh, let me just, just say, I'm open to what you're suggesting. Okay. I'm, I'm not closed minded here, but as I read the prologue of Hebrews, um, I see that it says the father created through the son. The Greek there is D-U chi epoiosen tus ionios. Ionos is, ion is a classical synonym for cosmos. So dia with the genitive is a is a construction of personal agency, okay? Uh, the Father created through the Son. If I walk through a door, the door must exist. If I buy Jordans through my friend, my friend must be a person, there must be a distinction. If I drank a Coke through a straw, that's real, right? So uh, this isn't talking about idealized pre-existence or some kind of retroactive, like, as if the author of Hebrews is sort of anachronistically attributing creation to the sun. That's not what you have here. At best, you could say, if this was Dia with the accusative, it could be he created on account of the sun or something like that. But that's not what you have here. And then in verses 10 through 12, it says explicitly, the father says the sun created. That's a personal distinction. 
I, I don't know. To me, subject object language relationship, uh, let, let me, economic distinctions okay. indicate person. Good, good, right? very good. Let, let me respond to that. You know, you're you're right in what you're saying. You know, the the especially in the Greek, you're going to see it way more than in the Hebrew. You're going to see it, it, it's very much sound like father and son are distinct beings, and that's why we see Unitarian scholarship getting such a foothold in. Um, prominent colleges uh, around the world, especially in the United States, um, and and we're seeing uh, a little bit of, of uh, uh, Arianism, uh, you know, being popularized on the internet, and and, uh, and you know because those points are clear, right? But we talk about we talk in those types of language when we're speaking in terms of people. But the Jews had a had a different way of using that distinct, distinct, distinctive language when applying it to God and His image, and and with the Holy Spirit as well. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the, the Logos and, and Holy Spirit uh, oftentimes uh, are equated in um, biblical and ex, extra biblical writings. As uh, you know, um, the New Testament uh, is. Um, McGrath says is quick to uh, render thought on Jesus in the same language as Old Testament usage of the Holy Spirit. So it, I think I think it it just comes down to that. It comes down to spirit and body, or spirit and image, and 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 that's that's kind of uh, the language. Yeah, I, I, get, I get it. Marcus. Where do you get that from? He's Hebrews, trying though. to show us that, but it's not. And not on a personal level because no one back then believed it that way. They didn't believe in a personal. Right, but Mark, level. where do you get that from Hebrews? Where do you get that from the text? I know that's your position, but where are you getting this from the Bible? That, that's my question. Where do you get your understanding from the Bible? Well, like, where do you find well, that? In well, here, here's okay. So I mean, you've given ample examples of the distinction language. You know. Um, you know, I mean, you can make other ones. I mean, John, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen is a great case for personal distinctions. You know, uh, the Greek there is, uh, you know, the way uh, Sharp's rule. I mean, it's pretty sound. You know, uh, there, there's uh, people who have done uh, work on exceptions to Sharp's rule and applied it to that. And I don't know much about that myself. But what I can say is that... Uh, just because it looks like distinction language, personal distinction language, doesn't mean that it is. And that's the point that I'm trying to make. Okay. Uh, so when the Bible depicts Jesus praying to the Father, the Father speaking to the Son, the Father loving his Son, calling him his beloved, the Son graciously sure. obeying his Father, the Son honoring his Father, serving his Father, there's it looks like distinctions but they're really not personal distinctions is that what you're telling me yeah uh you know what we have there is descriptions of a relationship of a human being with their god and and i don't see any problem there whatsoever okay so uh so jesus is merely a human being that's what you're telling me and he's he's no, praying to god no 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 no, no. We have to 
we have to place the, these things in these examples in context, you know, and when you're talking about, um, you know, this is my beloved son and whom I will please. Yeah. You know, this is God speaking of the human being, man, you know, Jesus Christ He's my son. I'm pleasing him, you know, um, you know, but that doesn't that doesn't mean that the ancient Judeo-Christians taught personal distinctions. This is where I think it, the problem is with. I'm not asking. A, I'm uh, asking when prayed or when the father spoke to the son, who was he talking to? Just the man? Just the human being? Okay. So I don't think we see, I don't think we see the examples. I don't think we see uh, conversations taking place, ongoing discourse. I mean, we're seeing statements being made and recorded, uh, you know, and God in his infinite wisdom knew that we'd be reading them 2,000 years later. But doesn't Jesus spend hours daily praying? That seems to be the prolonged discourse to me. Well, 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 hold on now, because if he didn't do that, would he be righteous and, and uh, able to be a propitiatory sacrifice? I'm sure he would, but it's a moot question because that's not what happened. But... What, what what are you saying by saying, well, we don't see a lot of interaction? He came to fulfill all righteousness, and he had to be an example for us, and, and he had to prove without any reasonable doubt that he was a genuine man, so the devil would try to kill him. But Jesus, is this just God speaking to a man? Is that what you're suggesting? Because I think that's what I just heard. No, I'm not a Unitarian, Mike. Okay, I so would never explain it. Jesus is just a man. Okay, so you're you're hearing wrong, and I and I would like to get back to my point, which is, you know, I I think we can't just rely on a plain grammatical method here. If if that's all you're using to extract from the text, you're you're not doing it right. Uh, you know. You, you have to take into account if those folks even believed what you're trying to say, those writings say that they believed. And modern experts are saying that they didn't believe that. And so you can't yeah, but presume. I'm just that, reading the pre- text. Can't presume, you can't presume personal distinctions, even though even though it's normative to to literature of the period or or, or even today. Even though it's normative uh, when you're talking between human beings, uh, you know, you, you can't presume that on these texts because that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about the relationship between God and his image. It's completely different. No, I, I get it, Mark. You, person keep, to person. you keep making that. I get it. You keep making that assertion. And, and what I've been asking you to do is to demonstrate that from the Bible. I get okay, that how, you that's your view. I totally get that. But okay, show me how, in scripture. How, 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 how can I demonstrate your lack of uh use of the historical method and hermeneutics from scripture? That don't make sense. I'm trying Mark, to explain look, that to, to us now. Let me let me just explain. I'm a Protestant, I'm a Reformed Baptist. I very much identify with the Protestant reformers. I wholly affirm the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, the first of which is sola scriptura, that the Bible alone is the infallible rule of the Christian faith for all Christian life and doctrine. I get your viewpoint. You've you've reiterated it ad infinitum here. I'm asking you, 
as a good Protestant, chapter and verse, please. Show me where it is in the text, because I don't see it. Hey, what are you asking like for said, in the text, Mike? What exactly are you asking for? The interpretation you just gave of Hebrews. Where is that in the text? Where do you find hey, it? What, interpreta what interpretation, Mike? Can you remind us what you're talking about, please? Yeah, the, the thing you just reiterated about this being God's image, uh, that there's this pre-existing uh, Jewish framework from, from the Second Temple period, uh, which would have precluded the language of personal well, I, distinction. I don't know how, I understand how you, I understand how you, no, I don't understand the question because you're asking me to give evidence from the biblical text on what the majority historians, the consensus is on the thought processes of St. Temple Judaism and early Judeo-Christian theology. And that doesn't make any sense at all. Okay, yeah, it's, an Mark, examination, viewpoint... it's an examination of the biblical text and the actual biblical text that leads historians to come to those conclusions. When they, when, when they see no distinction language in any ancient writing until Valentinus the Gnostic, it's pretty safe to say that no one before that taught that way, especially since the bishops of power were modalistic monarchians and rejected all, all those who taught personal distinctions. So you that's what historians history are saying, history. Michael. I'm not. I'm not. Listen, listen. I'm not a grammarian. You get. You get. In, no, hold on. Hold on. Listen. Let me explain. Hey, you got. You got to talk to each other, Doctor Michael. Let's allow Mark to uh, respond to what you're saying I need to make before the point. cutting them off. Okay. You're. You're. You're get. You know. You're good with the languages. You get into grammar and things like that. And you. Uh, you know. You can read the Greek and the Hebrew real good and all those things. You know. So uh, th that's good and everything, okay? But uh, the the historians, uh, when they look back and they see that you don't see any of that type of personal distinction language until much later, and those that did bring up were rejected and excommunicated by the leadership, especially in Rome, then then that then then when they take account all that evidence, including the exegetical biblical evidence. They 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 form that um, hypotheses and 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 conclusions, and you know, and that's what I'm trying to get across. I'm saying that there's that nowhere in the text does it mean to teach personal distinctions, even though it's saying personal distinctions. I can't go to the text and show you that. I could just tell you that that's what the majority of modern scholarship believes when it comes to the the history of doctrinal development. And so okay, you're, Mike, you're, you, want to talk about, to you want to talk about move, you want to talk about move points, okay? We we can't talk about move points. It, it's an extremely move point to to try to bring up second century doctrine from first and earlier century scriptures. Yeah, that 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 goes against everything okay. that hermeneutics right. teaches. Let's allow all right, Doctor so, Michael. Go ahead and respond to that. So, so I, guys, Mark, I, I got maybe guys, I got maybe two minutes or three minutes, and I have to go get my wife from work. Uh, okay. Uh, All right. Well, I'll be glad to stick around and answer questions if your your watchers have questions. Yeah, okay, if, if we could get if we could get into some questions and answers real quick before I go, that would be great. All right. If I could just uh, respond to this last year. Yeah. Please, um, please do, please. So. Essentially, what you're saying is if we don't have this pre-existing framework, we can't understand the Bible correctly. Uh, I reject that. 
because that undermines not only the sufficiency of scripture, but it ignores the fact that there's an actual hermeneutic in the text that Jesus exemplifies, that Paul exemplifies, that the other apostles exemplify, even that the Old Testament writers exemplify. And their viewpoint, their hermeneutic, is not that I need an extra biblical uh, framework in order to understand scripture. It's that scripture interprets scripture, the analog uh, analogy of faith. Uh, so I reject that idea. You've not demonstrated that. And if that were true, we would expect what you're suggesting to appear in the text. That's the big okay. elephant. So in the here's, room. The, here's the thing. I need to respond here. to this because you keep no, no, moderate. I, I need to respond to this because you keep no, no, because you keep doing this over and over again. You're putting words in my mouth again. This is the fifth time, Mike. I've caught you doing it. Okay, I never once said that that we need to go to outside sources and, and have it as a, as a standard. For, I'm so scripture just like you are, Mike. Okay, scripture interprets scriptures, yeah, but we have to understand the proper historical context of, of what the writer of that scripture meant when he said what he said, and the proper historical context of what the recipients would have that were reading those documents would have understood. And how they would have understood. That, Mark? Do you get that outside and, and, of the Bible, or do you get that from inside the Bible? No, that's that's proper that study context? science, and I'm not going to entertain this this. Uh, this uh, type of questioning any longer. I'd like to go to the questions from the audience, please. All right, we can do that. Um, all right, so we'll go. We'll go to the questions. We got some questions here. Uh, let's see if we can knock some of these questions out. Got a super chat here coming from the Daily Gripe in Mark one two. The author cites Malachi three one. But where Malachi records God saying, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Mark changes before me to before you. Um, and the questioner is asking guys to discuss it. Okay. Um, I'm not really. Can you, Mike, if you understood what he said, kind of explain what's going on because. Uh, yeah, sure. I'd, I'd be happy to. Uh, so um, the question is, is actually assuming something wrong. Uh, Mark, you see, what Mark does is he, he conflates Isaiah 40 and verse 3 and, and Malachi 3.1, and that's why you have the change in, in pronoun there. But the, the point of the citation is to identify the Son of God as the angel of the covenant, the Malach Yahweh, the angel of God, and thus to give the New Testament readers a pre-existing framework to understand Christology, namely that he is the angel of the Lord, that he is the one who messages the image of God to man, uh, not in a, you know, uh, protecting God's transcendence sense, because uh, Second Temple Judaism, apart from its Hellenistic expression, didn't have that. Uh, that is not represented in, in their writings heavily. It's only in late pseudepigrapha when you get that kind of thing. You don't get it before that. Uh, and so that's what's going on there. And it's a fascinating verse because, uh, in fact, uh, my pastoral intern wrote a wonderful paper on Malachi 3.1. There's a lot of debate surrounding it, but it really does tie the Old and New Testament in terms of its view of Christ together uh, in a very compelling way. All right, Dr. Mark, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I don't really get the question. Uh, uh, just go ahead with the next one. 
All right, uh, here's a question for Michael here. It says, Michael, do you get it from outside the text or inside the text? Mark, don't ask me no more questions. Let's just do audience Q. Uh, are you making, I guess this is just a statement by the audience. I thought it was a question for for Dr. Michael. So we'll, we'll skip that there. Um, here's a question though for, for, for you, Dr. Mark. Romans 11 says that the Jews are blinded from Jesus. Why would we go with their view if we have the Holy Ghost? Okay, sure. Um, well, we have to work off an Old Testament framework for uh, uh, Christology because the New Testament Christians were Jewish, and that's the theology which they sprang from. And so the Christian progeny naturally carried over and adopted some of these or most of these same beliefs and frameworks for beliefs. Um, and like I said earlier at the beginning, it wasn't like the Christians came on the scene and created some new theology of nowhere, kind of piecemealing it from Judaism and other religions, kind of like uh, how Muhammad did uh, with Islam. But it's more of, you know, a natural transition. And it, like I said earlier, as, as Ronnie says, uh, you know, a, a natural transition from Jewish thought in the Targums to New Testament Christology yields a modalistic outcome. All right, you have any thoughts on that, Michael? Dr. Michael? Yeah, not those. <laughs> um, so my view, and and I think I've demonstrated this in writing uh, in Against One is Pentecostalism, the third edition, particularly the fourth chapter. Uh, what I show there is that um, prior to the establishment of Christianity, uh, you have a diversity of theologies among Second Temple Jews. And among those theologies, there is a non-Unitarian stream of Pharisaic Judaism uh, that is well represented among synagogues. And this view uh, looked at God as though there was complexity in his unity. And how they arrived at that was during that 400 years of silence when God wasn't giving any more revelation, they studied the Old Testament scriptures very carefully, and they noted that on the one hand, you have Yahweh, Israel's covenant God, uh, but then you have on the other hand, this very enigmatic and yet godlike figure named the Malik Yahweh, the messenger of Yahweh. And, and the thing is, he doesn't really act like a messenger. He never delivers a message. Instead, what he delivers is the presence of God to man. And he's treated like God. He receives worship. He speaks to God. God speaks to him. And so, uh, and so what you do is, when Christianity begins, people who have that framework and who had a great messianic expectation become Christians, all right? That's how Paul and Peter could accommodate the divine Messiah within monotheism, and, and they become Christians. And then all of a sudden, the rabbis, the men in charge, that view becomes out of line. It becomes illegal. It becomes a, a bad idea because it, what does it do? It leads people into Christianity. And so uh, rabbis begin to write against that view. Uh, they begin to kick people out of synagogues who hold that view. And there's a bunch of extant literature depicting all of this. Uh, that view was called pejoratively by rabbis, two powers in heaven. Uh, but what it really is, is biblical Judaism. And so the Unitarianism that Mark pretty much consistently appeals to as he talks about Jews believing in a God who is one person is really a reaction in large part to 
uh, the biblical Judaism uh, that existed prior to the coming of Christ and the establishment of the church. And so uh, when Mark appeals to that, what he is in fact appealing to is unbelief, not faith in God. All right. Can I respond um, to that? Yeah, go ahead, doctor. Just, just quickly, uh, the vast majority of experts today would disagree wholeheartedly with what Dr. Burgo said on uh, ancient Judaism uh, and, and what he was saying. That he's talking about destruction of documents and trying to uh, purge Judaism uh, of language, of, of distinction language. And it's because uh, the Philonian doctrine was getting so strong and, and Christianity was getting so strong. And uh, so we, we see them trying to, uh, as, as can be demonstrated uh, uh, throughout history um, amongst the Jews and, and other uh, ancient civilizations, a, a purging of certain uh, pre, uh, uh, precepts of, uh, and tenets you know, in order to preserve what they felt was the good, you know, and so the destruction of a lot of modalist writings by the Catholic Church could be one example uh, of that, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. But that's just, that's kind of my, my take on that. I, I would say uh, I wouldn't take Dr. Burgos's word on those things. I'd, I'd go and look at the experts in print right now, the, the people that, uh, you know, the scholars are, are looking to as experts, Balcom, Hurtado, those guys, uh, uh, Dunn, Daniel Liu, uh, you know, write some good stuff on that. Uh, can we can we have a, just a few more questions, please? I, I really I really have maybe about ten minutes, and that kind of okay. gets you so, ready so, to go. Yeah, sounds can good. I just I uh, don't take my word for it. Get my book, chapter four. The book has you know two hundred and sixty pages, six hundred and ninety footnotes. It's all right there. <laughs> don't take my word for it. It's been in print for years. Uh, Mark could have responded to it, you know, many, many times. Uh, so I may do that in the future, buddy. I may do that. All right. So here's a here's a question here. Um, a question for both you and Mike. You and Mark. Uh, Michael and Mark. How do each of you twist verse John chapter twenty verse seventeen support your doctrine specifically? I go to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Uh, I believe this may be coming from a Unitarian. Um, like and it. and uh, they are asking both of you that you both twist this verse to get your doctrine. What do you guys think? They're asking say, why we twist ask. it? Yeah, they're saying why, why are you twisting this verse in order to get your doctrine? Um, it sounds like it's coming from Unitarian. Mike, Mike you go ahead and do that one. I'll, I'll defer to you on that. I, I love how subordinationists talk uh, with their loaded questions that presuppose guilt. Uh, that is remarkable. Uh, obviously, we don't twist, or at least I don't twist John twenty seventeen. I believe exactly what it says. Uh, I think Jesus had a God because he was incarnate, and that God was his father. Uh, I, I don't see a problem with that. That doesn't you know run counter to my the theological views. Uh, so I don't twist it. That's my answer. And stop uh, uh, being a subordinationist before it's too late. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. I'm sorry. 
Any any thoughts on that, uh, Dr. Mark? Um, you know, uh, we're talking about again a relationship between a genuine man here and and he has to operate within Judaism and the rules and, and confines of Judaism. And I think it's just kind of you know, an example of that. It's kind of language, you know. We have one father, Malachi 2.10, you know, and not one God created us. We have one God creator, you know, God himself, the father. And uh, so I think that's kind of what we're seeing. Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend unto my father and to your father. So it's kind of showing a commonality amongst Jewish brethren there. I think it's kind of what, what we're getting at. I, I don't I don't see certainly don't see any type of uh, Unitarian doctrine there or that that Jesus is not God. I mean, there's nothing there that, that says that. that. There's plenty in the Bible that does say Jesus is God, but there's, especially this scripture here, there's nothing there that says that he's not. So I, I would invite them to, to, instead of studying the scriptures that, uh, to prove your doctrine, I would I would study other scriptures, not your talking point scriptures, but other ones as well, and, and see how you can reconcile those two groups. Because there's so much in the Bible that talks that says how Jesus is God. I mean, it's abundant. You know, right. you can't just throw those pages out. All right. So this will be the final question here. This is actually coming from me. I wanted you guys to interact with this ver these these couple verses. Uh, right here um, in John 10 29 30 it says my father which give them me what gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hands I and the father are one so this is uh, this uh, especially verse 30 tends to be a go-to verse uh, with, with most oneness uh, Pentecostals as it concerns the relationship uh, the defeating if you will of the idea of distinctions of persons. Uh, so what would be your take on this, Dr. Mark, uh, on this verse as it concerns, uh, more specifically, John chapter 10, verse 30? Okay. So where did you start, though? I started at verse 29, uh, John 10, 29. Okay. Um. Well, you know, looking at that, I would say I'd be 100% in agreement with uh, Dr. Burgos on that. Uh, I think that what, whatever he say, I would just be sitting there shaking my head, um, except for, you know, uh, I, I would think that, that that it's more of a unity there, like, um, because the question that was posed here, hold on. I I don't have my computer set up right, but um, yeah, I, I would say you know it it's not it's not as much of a oneness proof text as what what people would try to make it out to be. You know, I, I, the Greek there is uh, is doesn't doesn't nail it down like that. And I'm gonna let Dr. Burgos go ahead and and touch on that a little bit. But it, I'd be mostly agree with what he's gonna say on it, except for. You know, I don't see a distinction of persons there. I, I think there's distinction language, like I said, but I don't I don't think it's personal distinction. But I'd go ahead and defer to him on that. All right. Uh Dr. Michael, what are your thoughts on John chapter ten? Verse twenty nine and thirty. 
Um, yeah, so uh, on the one hand, we have a proof text for subordinationists. Uh, my father is greater than all. And then we have the proof text for one to spend apostles, John 1030. I and my father are one, so I guess we'll do them in order. Um, what subordinationists don't seem to understand, and this is wasn't true about the more sophisticated subordinationists, uh, like, you know, your Greg Staffords and, you know, your uh, uh, your subordinationists from, you know, 19th century England. They, they got this, but the modern ones don't seem to. Uh, but Trinitarians believe in an incarnation. They believe the Son of God became an authentic and genuine human being who took upon himself all of the limitations of human existence. And so the Son of God, enduring that great humiliation, a humiliation which will culminate, of course, in the cross where he uh, pays for the sins of his elect. When he does that, that great humiliation, he says, my father, which gave them, meaning my elect, uh, to me, he is greater than all. He's saying that in his status of being humiliated. And so obviously uh, we see that kind of humiliation, that subordination language throughout the entire New Testament until the Son of God is, is resurrected. Uh, just as we would expect, because he's glorified. Uh, that's why he says in John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Uh, so that's verse 29. Verse 30, uh, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. And traditionally, one of Pentecostals have said, well, what this means is essentially that uh, Jesus is claiming to be the Father. And so it goes with like John 14 and in some of those other places. Uh, the trouble with that, as Tertullian pointed this out, going way back to the early third century, uh, he said the Greek doesn't afford that. In fact, obviously the context doesn't either, uh, but uh, the Greek here is ego, kai, hapater, hen, esmen. The verb esmen is a plural verb of being. And so perhaps a real literal translation would be I and the Father, we are one. If this was we are one. a one-to-one -one identification, that wouldn't be how you would say that. Uh, in fact, that wouldn't be how you say that at all. So if this is the if the New Testament says Jesus is the Father, or he's the same person as the Father, or something like that, this is not that verse, even though it typically is used that way by one of the Pentecostals. Uh, but that text certainly doesn't say that. Rather, as we read it contextually, in the way that you should read the scriptures, because you should never read an isolated verse. When we read it contextually, what Jesus is saying there is, I and the Father are one in the salvation of his elect. Right? He's not making an ontological claim, but an economic claim about the fact that he will save his elect and no one can snatch them out of his hand. So that's that's how I would respond to that. All right, all right. Cool, appreciate you guys' thoughts on that verse, and I appreciate you guys for joining me um and so big thanks to you dr mark man i know dr michael you held on strong man but dr mark i appreciate you for coming in last minute once again and um i'll be looking to contact you again perhaps we could do something else i would love to invite you back on uh and dr michael once again great job man appreciate you man and uh look forward to perhaps getting that brandon nero debate back on schedule with you because i definitely think that is Gonna will be a great debate between you and Dr. Uh, uh, Reverend, should I say, or Elder, should I say, uh, Brandon Nero. And uh, with that said, you guys have any closing remarks before I let you guys go? 
Yeah, thank you, Mark, for jumping in. Appreciate it. And and Marlon, thank you very much for your hospitality. You've been very gracious and very lenient. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt, man. Anything, Mark? Uh, yes, sir. Hey, uh, you know, did the best I could, man. Sorry, sorry, I wasn't prepared. You know, I, I never uh, didn't know until he gave me the call that y'all needed somebody. So uh, I I would like to come back again, maybe uh, more well prepared next time, and and ha have uh, more than just a little discussion. For sure, for sure, definitely, definitely. You guys uh, are great, and uh, so that's it. I'm gonna let you guys go. Uh, you guys take care and God bless. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All right, guys. Another one in the books. I hope you guys found this discussion edifying and a blessing and helpful, right? And helpful. And um, once again, uh, as has been explained already numerous times, that the mark was a fill-in for Elder Brandon Nero. Uh, who could not do it due to obligations to his job. So this is not Brandon running away or scared or anything like that. I do not want that run, that 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 mill, that rumor mill to start. This is simply Brandon Nero having obligations for his job. So that is absolutely understandable uh, for that. And But I do look forward to uh, Brandon Nero and Dr. Michael Burgos eventually having this debate because I do believe that this would be a great debate for them to have and um uh, if you guys have yet to do so uh, before you leave this channel make sure you are subscribing to the gospel truth so you don't miss out on any shows that are coming up here in the future and we have some doozies that are coming up soon and i do not want you to miss those debates um, if you have yet to do so make sure you're subscribing or following the gospel truth on tiktok because on there, I not only try, I'm trying to go live and I've gone live maybe once or twice on there, uh, but I also am engaging with atheist majority on there. There's a lot of atheists they need to be ministered to. So if you're interested in hearing me engage with the atheist on, the, on, the, on TikTok, make sure you flow over there and subscribe on the TikTok to be involved in that conversation because there's a lot of ministry work over there that needs to happen as well um with that said though i'm gonna get out of here and i thank you guys for joining me on the gospel truth and i think the next show that is coming up here in the future is on the 25th of this month uh so be on the lookout for that one all right so guys out there make sure you subscribe hit the like hit the share don't forget to do that and I look forward to seeing you next time, all right? You guys take care and God bless.